Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Black Expat Experience, a live show and podcast highlighting the lived experiences of Black expats around the world. I'm Kendall Tyson, your host, a licensed therapist and a fellow Black expat. And today we have another great episode in store for you. And I would like us to welcome our newest guest, Tatiana, to the show. Hi, Tatiana. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so we have a slight deviation. I am going to open the floor for Tatiana to give us a description of who she is as an individual and an expat. So please take it away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess me as an individual, I'm Tatiana. I'm from Illinois. Southern Illinois, not Chicago. There is more to Illinois than Chicago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I grew up near farms and stuff. Um, I have, I've been in China for five years. I've been in Beijing since 2019. So I got here right before the pandemic. Uh, for what I typically do, I am the creator of the Hopelessly Tatiana thing that is a podcast, but it's also events. I do poetry, spoken word. Occasionally we do plays, uh, panels, depending on what goes on. So suicide awareness, we did a panel. It just kind of depends on what mental health thing I think people need to be more comfortable talking about. And then we zero in on it. It's like, I guess that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, very multifaceted. Um, and I do notice all of the the great things that you do. And it makes me think like, or wonder, I'm always wondering, I'm super curious about what what was it in your life that sparked your interest in the platform that you created, Hopelessly Tatiana? Oh, well, <laughs> my platform uh, was kind of an exercise in healing. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I'd had a series of really crappy relationships and one of them uh, after we'd broken up, something that he'd said to me was, you never finish anything you start. You always have all these great ideas and you never finish anything. And so I kind of went on a everything on my list. I'm going to finish it to show him, <laughs> which led to the creation of the podcast. And uh, while I was doing that, I quit drinking. Ooh. And when I quit drinking, so I will be, it'll be two years, January 1st. So oh, when wow. I quit drinking... I kind of went on a, thank you. <laughs> I went on a self discovery and understanding tour, I guess is the best way to phrase it. So that's kind of where everything came from was kind of a, I, once I quit drinking, I, I hate to say I'll woo woo, but I saw myself for like the first time in years. Like I could actually see me and I saw patterns and trends. And I was like, man, I've been hiding from me for years. Wow. And so it was kind of a way to heal. And that's where we, that's how we got here. <laughs> Listen, I, all of my spidey senses just went up with all the things I want to talk about. <laughs> and I just, I'm like literally blown away by, you know, <laughs> that you just made. And so what I want to first say is congratulations um, for doing a very difficult thing, right? And sometimes great things can grow out of spite. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm not judging anybody's impetus to be great. Um, and then I, I'm very encouraged by your decision, right. To notice 
I want to do things differently. I want to live life differently. And then just to hear you say that you you finally saw yourself. Um, I, I don't know if you said for the first time after a long time, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering with this rediscovery of you, right? Mm-hmm. What have you noticed has changed in your life? So much has changed. Um, the relationships I form tend to be stronger and healthier now. Um, And I have an easier time setting boundaries because the relationships I form are stronger and healthier. I no longer have that fear of saying no. Because like when you have these flimsy relationships, you're always afraid they're going to leave because I've got severe childhood abandonment issues. So when I have these flimsy relationships, you're afraid to say no because you're afraid to leave. And since I quit drinking, since I took time to sit with me, I feel more comfortable being like, this doesn't serve me. <laughs> so either it changes or I leave. And I feel more comfortable being like, these are my boundaries. And saying that because I I have the right to be comfortable just like everybody else does. So I feel like that's one of the biggest things I've noticed that's like that I've seen is just me being like, nope, this is not work. And I don't have to stay in this position. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It is. It's choosing yourself over and over and over again and demystifying that or debunking the myth that to do so, you know, is selfish and you have to be a bad person and to help with all of that, it's not true. Um, Because if you can't, if you find it difficult to choose yourself to say no, to remove yourself from situations and places that are not healthy and do not allow you to bloom as your, you know, full self, you'll continue to be stuck and unhappy um and not thriving and yeah oh I can just and obviously you share whatever you're comfortable with this I do my best to create a safe space <laughs> and, and you know the kind of idea is that the world will see you know what you choose to share but I'm always of the mindset that our situations aren't necessarily for us um mm-hmm. what we are brave enough to give to the world is definitely going to unlock healing and understanding for somebody um, that's in a place to receive it. So I obviously didn't know any of this. And <laughs> and why would I, right? Why don't go around asking people, what's your childhood like? Well, sometimes I do. <laughs> um, <it depends. laughs> but I'm, I'm so glad that we got this interview started on just a really firm note of to live abundantly, choose yourself. Oh, absolutely. Oh, you can <laughs> absolutely. keep more of that to live abundantly. I'm, I'm, I feel like something's going to be born out of this statement. I just, I just <laughs> to live abundantly, choose yourself. It might be another shirt, a sweater or something. I don't know. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Nope. I am in complete agreement. Um, and I definitely don't feel like I've reached the pinnacle of my abundance. You know, like I feel like we mm-hmm. will keep, you keep growing, but I feel like accepting, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were talking about how they see me and I'm doing all these things. And it's like, they're so happy. And I was like, this came from pain and my, my present happiness, <laughs> my present happiness is me choosing to be my authentic self because being my authentic self heals me. So the more I go out there as me, the stronger I feel, the more healed I am. I don't feel healed when I'm being 
when I'm wearing the masks that society says I need to wear. So, and he was like, oh my God, that's so strong. I was like, it's, it's the truth, strong or not. It's the truth. Being you heals you. (laughs) Being you heals you. That was, I I think you've just given me the title to your episode, Healing Through Authenticity, um, which is so funny because (laughs) I did like a, um, a mental health brunch, like maybe three years ago. And it was literally talking about, you know, healing, how authenticity is a healing practice, um, mm-hmm. especially when we when we work in these spaces that aren't necessarily designed for us to thrive. Um, and that can be very harmful in their everyday practices. And so how does that look? What does that look like for us to be authentic, show up as our true selves? create things that allow, provide a vehicle for us to share these things with the world. And I'm curious, um, I'm going to kind of shift to the whole community aspect now. With the community that you've been able to curate um, since you've chosen to become an expat, how do you believe like it's been, what, what has been healing, you know, nurturing about the community that you've been able to create your chosen family or or you know whatnot since living abroad um well when I look at my platform community that's a bit different because it's more of like everybody's there and we have themes and we have discussions and I don't always agree with everything that's said (laughs) but it's uh I'm a firm believer in um if my belief cannot stand up to scrutiny then it's not really some it's not a fundamental core belief so I do like having being environments where I'll say something and someone will push back because it gives me a chance to reaffirm what I believe or to question it and you know maybe reevaluate in terms of the community I've made like on a personal level it's grown and it's changed um Growing up, I was always someone who had a lot of friends that were multicultural. Like my best friend is Indian. We've been best friends for 20 years, over 20 years. Oh, she's going to be mad at me. Over 20 years. <laughs> um, and like, I've always had that multicultural, multicultural leaning because I, I don't believe that. But I guess I do believe that being the best you means understanding who people are as themselves too. And it's hard to do that when you stay in places where you aren't exposed to things Mm -hmm. and being an expat just exposes you to more stuff. So you're exposed to more views, more, more ideas. And sometimes they don't all mesh, but the community I've formed that works for me is one that is very eclectic, (laughs) but it also pushes me out like we went rock climbing which is if you know me at all I'm not into athletics (laughs) (laughs) or like uh recently I played a tabletop game which I guess is not D&D but close so like just doing stuff that's well out of my comfort zone or that I was like I didn't know I would like this thing being challenged in that kind of a way but in a healthy environment where if I don't like it I don't lose anything because that's always my fear is I'll start something and then I'll be like I don't like this and then they'll leave and my abandonment issues resurface. And so the community I've formed, I feel my personal community, I feel like the strength of it is that it's different and it's acceptance of each other and themselves. But it also changes because as expats, people leave and then they go and then we we lost someone very important to us recently. So people leave, but that doesn't mean that the community leaves like they're still a part of that personal yeah. like narrative of who we are. So yeah, 
I know to piggyback off of that, as far as the transient nature of being an expat, it's been one of the things that I personally this year have found to be harder because um, I've had people really close to me to transition to other places. And it's been very challenging for me um, to kind of step outside and I guess I could say acquire new people because um, it's a bit of an acquisition. Um, and I find myself, I'm always like very selective about individuals that I choose to be in those really intimate parts of my life. And I found it really hard this time around with the exodus of people leaving for COVID reasons and um, just, you know, progressing and finding better positions in other places of the world. And I'm wondering, how are you handling like that transition, knowing the transient nature of international living? Um, well, see, I keep talking about my abandonment issues, but in that sense, it makes people leaving a different kind of painful. Mm. So what I've what I've adapted to now is more of when I recognize people have left, they're not gone. They're mm. just not here. I like that. Um, and that's kind of how I look at things. So people can move, but they're not gone. They're just not here. Okay. Um, and that makes it a lot easier for me. Because when I grew up, uh, like I'm the oldest of five mm. and <laughs> we were all together all the time or for the most part, you know, we were removed from my parents a couple of times for neglect. Mm -hmm. um, but once we were together, together, we were together all the time. And so I went off to college and that separation after having been removed from my parents was horrifying. And I was not a functional adult for a long ass time. So I, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if we can cuss right, on here. <laughs> There's no censorship on this show. <laughs> um, but like I wasn't a functioning adult because of these severe abandonment problems. And I guess what I've grown into over the past decade and a half is understanding that um, people leave, but that doesn't mean they've left you, they've left, you know? And so being able to separate the me from their action, like they didn't abandon me, they just moved yeah. and they're taking a piece of me with them when they leave and I get to keep a piece of them and we can continue to grow. So I guess that's how I look at it. Still sad, but a lot less like distraught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I fully understand that. So what I hear you saying is, I really I really like the reframe of they've left, but they haven't left me. They've just transitioned to somewhere that allows them to again do what I'm wanting to do, live a better quality life, have better opportunity, um, be in a space that helps them to really actualize as a human. But that doesn't mean that they've been separated from me and out of my life. So being able to really reframe the the transition, I would imagine, doesn't take away the, the sad nature of I will miss you on a daily basis. But yeah. it does help when that activation of fear and abandonment and anxiety does kick in. It's no, you're a WhatsApp call away or <laughs> no, exactly. that's a Zoom date. Um, on the calendar or when the world or I guess when China allows us to leave and come back without all the restrictions that's a plane ride that's a that's a trip that's a vacation um yeah. so I really appreciate you sharing how you as you work through the experiences in your life that have led to this point and your understanding of relationships and things 
a really healthy way of being able to be a bit more objective in the way that you're processing the way, what you're feeling. Um, mm-hmm. But I also like the fact that you're not running from what you're feeling. Um, Cause we know that when we run, it's like the little yapping chihuahua. Mm-hmm. It's right at the heels, right at your heels. At the mm-hmm. heels, nibbling, getting louder. Not going to go anywhere until you give it the attention that it's asking for. So I commend again, your bravery for sharing some of the things that you stated already. And I'm really curious. I, I feel like this conversation is going to really hin- uh, hinge on mental health which is great Um, my whole life (laughs) literally but honestly all of ours some of us just come into contact with the understanding sooner than later and Mm -hmm. some of us push it away and it is mandated that we pay attention to it while some of us are in environments that give us an earlier and easier introduction to the importance of mental health and wellness. And, and honestly, most, you know, black indigenous people of color that I know don't have that um, easy introduction, right? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, but that's why we do this. And I'm imagining why you do what you do advocacy and the way that you advocate is so that we don't have to live blindly um, as adults, fully functioning, or I won't say fully functioning, functioning adult. <laughs> um, but I want to I want to ask you, like, tell us about your journey into expat life. Oh, <laughs> um, love that. Well, <laughs> uh, well, I was a Peace Corps actually. Uh, that really? was that was when I started. Yeah, I served in Liberia. Um, oh, in oh my gosh! I've that. never heard that. What heard Peace Corps? <laughs> well, no, you're like the second person that I've heard talk about the Peace Corps, but I've never heard of anybody serving in Liberia. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it was where they placed me. I was a teacher in Liberia for about a year and a half. I ended up having to leave early because I had an an eye condition, and had to have it fixed, and obviously come back to the states to take care of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was my first time living overseas. Was uh, being taken from, and like I grew up in a mixture of, of uh, want and like need, a mixture of need and need and have, because there are certain elements of my childhood where we were deeply like impoverished. And then there are elements of my childhood where we had what we needed. And I grew up in like a, a, a back and forth because we were removed a couple of times. So it was a back and forth of have enough, don't have enough, have enough, don't have enough. And it's really framed how I view my life and view the world. And when I graduated from college, I was like, well, I want to see the world. I don't want to be stuck. And like, but I also didn't want, because it feels like when you're poor, the real options for seeing the world, the only one, the only real one is joining the military. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. honestly too fat. So Girl. <laughs> the military was like, don't take me. I'm too fat. So they were like, nah. So I was like, okay. And I, I've always been dedicated to service work. So I applied for the Peace Corps and I finally there were some hiccups and stuff happened, but by the time it was about 2015, I was actually able to go. And Liberia was a real eye-opening experience because like I had my my version of poverty had been, you know, growing up in East St. Louis, um, living in areas with extreme gun violence, you know, having like ex actual exposure to drug drugs and like 
and stuff like that, not just on the streets, but in, in our homes and neighborhoods like that, that was my, that was my early childhood. And it formed what I viewed as poverty. And then when I became a, in my, oh, I'm so old. I'm not, but like, I feel like it, <laughs> in my uh, mid twenties, I went and moved to Arizona and I became a child abuse investigator. Mm. Um, and in doing so, I was, you don't just, you, I was in Phoenix and there are a lot of tribes. And so there's a lot of tribal land. So mm. being, seeing poverty even more extreme than what I had been used to was just, it was, I had, I couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined that yeah. there was really a such thing as a bridge separating million dollar homes from houses that were barely standing. And it was literally like a bridge, like a street. And it was just mind blowing to be exposed to that, especially in the re-traumatizing environment that I was in. Um, and then when I went to Liberia, it was, it was a lot of poverty, but it, because everybody there was roughly living in roughly the same sort of a state, there was less um, animosity. Like everybody there pretty much got along. Everybody was pretty happy. You know, the, the speed of life was slower. Um, there were definite challenges, definite real challenges. And I didn't have running water in my apartment. <laughs> I had to go pump my pump water at the well. Um, I did not have electricity. So nights are candles and uh, giant spiders. <laughs> giant spiders. Oh my God, those spiders are so big. <laughs> oh God, they were huge. Um, but overall, my time there was was really pleasant. And so when I got to China, it was just like another place to look at the world, to see it a little differently, to be like, oh, okay. So this is what it's like here. Yeah. That's kind of been my journey from... A to Z. Well, I guess we're probably in the middle. <laughs> A to L. Another chapter, right? So then I, I can only imagine that these internet, these challenging internet days and terrible smog, uh, they pale in comparison to some of the things that you've been <laughs> experienced and, and worked through, lived through, all of that. Um, This is going to sound silly, but I I don't measure it that way. So it's just kind of just, it's what it is. Yeah. I, I think that was what Liberia taught me was if I keep the framework of this equals this or this compared to this, then no one's happy. Like they went through a civil war that ravaged their country. And for the most part, everybody gets along. Like it's one of the few places I know of where people who are Muslim, Christian, can live right next door to each other, even in the same communities with zero conflict. Mm. And it's this, they're far more accepting of each other. And a lot of it has to do with how they frame things. Mm. It's less of a, well, this is what it was like then, or this is what it's like there. It's more of being present in the moment. Like so that. when I, I mean, the smog is definitely annoying and a, and a health concern, but I don't, when I, when I think about being here, I instantly go, oh my God, it's so nice to have running water. Oh my God, it's so nice to have electricity. Exactly. Oh my God, it's so nice to, I, I don't think about what I don't have. I think about how, what I do have and what I'm grateful for. So it I, makes it less of a, <laughs> yeah, listen, what you just ended with is the foundation of solution-focused living and thinking. 
it is thinking about life in abundance. Like, what are you moving toward? What are you grateful for? What the presence of the things in your life that makes it full as opposed to the lack. Well, I don't have this and I want to run away from that. And if I didn't have this and it is such a mental shift to take. Um, and sometimes I often believe that you have to experience lack in some degree to really understand the abundance that's present for mm -hmm. you um, to make that really intentional mental shift about how you choose to perceive the world that you live in. Um, I am really, I'm going to say curious, like 30 more times I can feel it about having lived through, witnessed, experienced some seemingly difficult situations right emotionally wrought things especially when it comes to children I used to work when I was getting my licensure I was a counselor a therapist for at a um, an abuse center for women and children and it was some of the hardest work becoming a counselor that I'd ever you know experienced so I'm really I really would like for you to share with us doing the work that you've done, what did it look like to take care of yourself physically, you know, and mentally during that time? Oh, I didn't. And mm -hmm. that's kind of, that's kind of why I focused on um, me quitting drinking now is so impactful because I didn't. Um, when I, when I started doing the child abuse investigations, part of it was like, oh, you know, the people who removed us I didn't like it at the time, naturally, because I was a child and I was like, oh no, um, but I'm so grateful for them putting us in a safer space. And I was like, I wanted to pay that for it. Let me go do this thing. And it ended up being very much a re-traumatization because I was, I had been removed and now I have to go remove people. Mm. And so I know exactly what these children are feeling. There is no separation between what they feel. And I know precisely how they feel. I know that they're scared. They're confused. <laughs> like, even if they're the victims of something horrific, they don't, it's rare that children view their perpetrators as bad guys. So it's being on, like being able to be on both ends of something. It was awful. And then at the time I was, I, I had just started, working on getting my master's in clinical psychology. So I'm doing these, I'm doing this job. I'm dealing with my own childhood trauma. And then I'm learning what's happening to these children's brain as a, as a result of the trauma. And then realizing that's what's happened to my brain as a result of the trauma. And then having to go do what's best for these kids, but also kind of traumatize them. And it was just, I did not take care of myself. There was a lot of wine. <laughs> like it got to the point where it was, I just, I couldn't afford the real stuff because, you know, salary of a social service person, yeah. I ended up with like yeah. box wine and just going through two boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It was me and box wine. And I'd go through a box in two or three days because oh, it was wow. just, too, it was so hard and yeah. I'd moved away from my family. So my support system was gone because I'm in a different state yeah. and it was, yeah, no, I did not take care of myself. I did not take care of myself at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder what what led to your decision to take that that to move into that career path. What was like the foundation of the decision? Uh, well, 
part of it was just need of a job and that was what was available right yeah what I can say is jobs like childhood their investigations for like DCFS or whatever the acronyms are for your state they are so in need of people to do social work because it is hard like it seems like it's easy it's not it's very difficult and so the turnover rate is super high so they're always looking for people and I'd already had a background in, you know, working with children. And like I did AmeriCorps when I was younger, like I'd always had a background of working with children and obviously came from a place of, oh, I understand what these kids are going through. I'm going to show up and I'm going to help them. And then you enter into that field and you're, and you realize it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of red tape and you don't get to help the way you want to help. You yeah. are a cog in <clears throat> the, in the proverbial wheel, right. um, and so that's kind of, I was like, I needed a job. And I was like, I can do some good with this job. And no, nah, it was after, I think I was there for less than a year. I was one of the turnover people. Cause it was just, it was too much for my psyche, especially yeah. at that time. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I, I like being a counselor in a school back in the States, having, you know, to work with social workers, it is a gut wrenching churning job right mm -hmm. to and it's not like you're dealing with the best circumstances right you're not you're not necessarily rejoining families or finding all these solutions and having your stuff funded no you're working with and especially in texas which has one of the worst like foster care and social services systems in the country not funny yeah. but laughable yeah. and terrible um yeah. burnout is high and and you experienced that for yourself so making that transition from that particular role to still serving students just abroad in a sense mm -hmm. how do you notice that your mental health has shifted uh well i think uh that transition to anything was healthy because <laughs> like <laughs> like uh like i i i feel like what if I ever am able to fully work through my trauma, that's something I could do. But until I do, it's just, I need to, that's not for me. People who do it though. And I learned a lot doing it. Um, I think the shift from that to being abroad, especially teaching was interesting because I have always not wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> I come from a family of teachers and all I've ever heard was how poorly paid they are. And all I've ever seen is how tired they are. Yeah, all, <laughs> all true. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, just, I don't want that for me at all. Yeah. Um, but teaching abroad has been really interesting because it allows for, you know, you to move around, you meet more people, but you get to see that our education system is terrible, but it's not, it it is a fixable terrible. Like the American yeah. education system is a fixable terrible if we could all agree that it needed to be fixed. Yeah. Um, and when you look at it in terms of like the way other countries do things, there's so much we could learn if we could look at like, oh, this works here, this works here. Maybe we should, one thing I do like about the system here in China is when they start talking about certain subjects, there are some, there are subjects they should talk about sooner, of course, but introducing the math and the sciences at, at like in, like in shifts, I like it because it gives kids a chance to like get used to something and get like fully immersed in it. And then they're able to focus on it more like deeply. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there are elements of it that are just of the systems, I guess, that are, if we were a global community, we could learn and grow because I kind of feel 
personally, like education is something that should not be withheld from anyone. And a, an educated populace is a significantly easier to work with one. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. I've got like, I said, man, I wish education was talked about more next to mental health. That's like those yeah. are the two things. All of it is, <laughs> all of it is intertwined. But what you just said that, it, what I, I'd like to add to what you shared was, I also believe that an educated populace is a liberated one and not every society. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that is true. I just finished reading this book by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us. I hope I got the title right. I'm literally being my mom right now. I will butcher a title. Um, <laughs> I think it's called The Sum of Us. And it was so eye-opening when it talks about the zero-sum nature of especially like um, things in America. Why mm -hmm. we can't have nice things is mm -hmm. one segment of, you know, the of America feels collectively, and this is definitely a generalization, that in order for another person to gain, I have to lose, not realizing mm -hmm. that when you hold your fist so tight so that others can't, you know, improve or gain, you also lose out, right? Yeah. So how do we come to the understanding that when we can kind of, when we can work together for the collective good, especially for children, everybody wins. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I feel like the collectivist thinking and understanding like where we are here to a degree I'll just go with COVID <laughs> so, it's something I can get behind because just looking at stuff back home it's just like I stay frustrated I stay pissed mm -hmm. off I stay angry I'm just like y'all it ain't over people <laughs> mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I don't know I hate to say I don't know I really like my therapist knows it's one of the things I hate to say is I don't know um but I want to, I, I, I want to stay on mental health a little bit. Okay. So when considering the country like China to live, what mm -hmm. were some of the determining factors that made this a viable option for you? Ooh, that's not really a mental health question. That's, that's a this is going to make me, it's going to be sound like a bad person, but I wanted to go somewhere where I stood out. <laughs> Like, Listen, for being, sure. <laughs> again, I know it sounds like, why would you want that? But being in Liberia was a really interesting experience, but I look like everybody there. So I got a different version of Liberia than the white Peace Corps got, mm. you know, because they were standing out. There was more of a, they got, it was a two, it was a two edged, double edged sword. So they got more, I don't want to say worship, but they were given more things. But there was also the whole fish in a bowl aspect that drove them absolutely nuts, where it was, they could not, there was never an element of privacy. Everything they did was like, oh, so like it was, uh, so there was like a double-edged sword. And I, I didn't experience that. I got to see things that I will never be able to unsee because people didn't realize I was a foreigner. Um, Like if I just sat there, at the at the football place with my lapa on and didn't talk you had no idea um especially because I my my glasses stopped working which is part of what was going on with the eyes so like I would just I just look like everybody else I got my hair wrapped I'm sitting down you have no idea yeah and some of the stuff I saw would they would have thought twice before doing in front of um the white peace corps so 
it was kind of like I wanted to be able to experience a culture from the outside um because it's it's really different when you're in it you know yeah. it's a it's a different experience especially when you're in it but you're not of it yeah so now like I'm experiencing it without context so all I have is my my judgments from my culture and my country and somehow I have to I have to marry those two things so that was why I came I was like I want I really wanted to be somewhere where I didn't look like everybody else where I could experience it in like a I don't want to say privileged but I guess more privileged space where it was just kind of like this is what it's like for foreigners oh okay and that was kind of why I chose this place and what have you noticed um that there are certain demographics to which it doesn't really matter where you are privilege will definitely be a thing you receive um and there when we when I first got here being um being a black expat was kind of cool there were elements of it that were a bit overwhelming um like I remember I went to what was it I went to Kaifeng went to Kaifeng because I was in a different I was in Zhengzhou at the time Mm -hmm. and we were at the temples and I'm there and I'm like I'm at the I'm really excited to explore and people saw me and they were super excited and then they wanted to take my picture and it got into a point where like I was standing and there was a revolving door of people and like I couldn't move because they just like one group would leave another group would come and like my friends had to like reach in and grab me and pull me out and then I spent the rest of the trip hiding from cameras and I've I've never been like I don't want to be famous more than in that moment because yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like if this is a minor amount of what it's like to have paparazzi I don't want it girl at all. <laughs> like can I escape please can I go live my life somewhere and be unknown yeah I, I believe like every black person that has come to China if they've not had that I, I don't know like where they're living um <laughs> because it is overwhelming to, to mm-hmm. say the least it feels I think one of the things that I felt when I got here and that kept happening it happens l- much less now or maybe I just don't notice it as much because I'm inoculated to it is I felt like such a spectacle. I was just like, I can't just be. I can't just be out here in the summer in my sundress, you know, cute and whatever. Nah, it is old men and ladies. Everybody want to just be in my space. And it, it, it felt like I was just encapsulated and I could not stand it. I, it was too much. So yeah. It's gotten less over time. And like when I would travel to other countries, I think one of the, my favorite places to be is in Indonesia. Um, Didn't witness it, didn't experience any of that. Like any of it. It, I was just like, how is it so different? It's just a few hours away. Um, How is it so different? I did have some older ladies come up when I would uh, go somewhere and they would just like touch my skin. I'm like, yeah, it don't rub off. It's it's soft. It's just the dark your One of my students did that. Bless his soul. He came up to me and he was just like, <sighs> I was like, yeah, it doesn't come off. But like he was a second grader. So it was adorable. And it just made me laugh. <laughs> I was like, yeah. no, sweetie. And then he was just completely no just like, oh my God. Right. No hate in that. That's all curiosity. They're just little it's, kids. So yeah. Right. It's when they older. Yeah. And you're like, come on now, y'all living in Beijing, a, a hella international <laughs> city. 
I'm not the only <laughs> black person that you, or person with dark skin that you've seen. Come on now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think being an expat has changed your life? Ooh. Um, well, it's nice to have more disposable income because it's the first time I've had that in my entire life. Yeah, like it's it is. I've never experienced what it's like to not to have money. Um, like after you pay your bills, to have more than just enough to for gas. Like I've never had that part. So it's nice to be in a to be able to be like I don't have to choose between like essential things. Um, so I, I like that. Uh, outside of that, how it's been expert. I mean, I'm definitely exposed to more people and more, um, more ideas. Uh, so there, there are benefits. I think there are other things I don't particularly love. I know when I go home, I'm less connected to people I grew up with because our, our frames of reference are now different. So yeah. sometimes I'll go home and I'll be like, Hey, and like the stuff we care about has shifted. So what matters to them isn't at the top of my list. So we, our communication grows like, so I've grown apart from people I lo- I've grown up to love, grown up loving, um, so they're good, they're bad. But I think overall, it's been a real, um, it's been a real exercise in learning my, who my authentic self is, because being so far away from home has given me the freedom to figure me out, you know, to do things that I wouldn't have tried at home for fear of reprisal of some sort. You know, I'm a grown ass woman and still absolutely terrified that my grandma's going to get mad at me. Still absolutely legit afraid. <laughs> I like, um, I'm writing down what you just said, the freedom to figure me out. Like you've given me so many gems or at least I'm noticing them. And yeah, one of the things that you shared is the, I think the the disconnect between the community that we grew up as individuals with to the person that we are now with this new context of living and experience and opportunity that that we've honestly gifted ourselves because nobody forced (laughs) us to move abroad and it feels it feels hard when there's a lack of understanding a lack of connection priorities you know, have shifted and we can't have the ease of, you know, relationship and familial connection and just shoot the shit and have fun. Um, mm-hmm. Because one, I have disposable income. I don't have to worry about certain things, right? I didn't have to pay to come back here and all these other things went and, and I got rent, mm-hmm. you know, there's racial unrest. There's hell, COVID, all the things wrapped up into that. And it's it's so incongruous. It just, and I don't know if it'll ever be in like a level of alignment and understanding anymore. Like the normal, the new normal is just different. Yeah, yeah. So I also, I wonder, does it come into play more now at this point, like the chosen family, that you've accumulated, you know, over the years that you've been abroad when it comes to really feeling connected to people? Um, I think it goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend a lot more time talking to my best friend back home. Okay. Uh, Cause it's like, a make sure that there's at least one lifeline. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like we talk, we, I can say that, you know, for my best friend who just had my nephew 
my mm-hmm. sister, my other friends. It's like I I cannot get in my feelings about when they like life is taking over because that's just what it is. So I have to be a lot more intentional, which sometimes I struggle with, especially if I'm dealing with depression. Like right now, these mm-hmm. an affective mm-hmm. disorder is kicking my ass. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, so in some ways it's nice because it's like, I'm like, I, I have to work harder to maintain those relationships back home. Um, because of the transient nature of the relationships here, I don't invest as much into them. You know, it's like I I, I invest so much, but not all of it. Um, so there's, there's like that level. So when I want to feel connected, I call home. Like I usually call my grandma once a week. Um and when I go too long, both of us notice and I get a very angry text message um, <laughs> or I call and she's like, oh, you know who I am. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh you guilt me one, don't you? You still alive, huh? <laughs> Like, all right, my bad, okay, my, granny. Bad, my bad, I, I apologize. <laughs> Listen, Brandy gonna um, get you, she gonna get you to get Oh them. man, I'm grown as hell and just, it does not matter. <laughs> doesn't matter at all yeah uh, so I feel like I, I try to make the relationships at home as strong as I can considering the distance um and I mean here I'd look at these relationships as as oh I don't want to say accessories because that's that's not right it's more of they are um they help me grow so it's mm-hmm. like they're like my relationships back home would be the foundation of my home like they're the foundation they're what I've built me on and everybody else I meet they add to me you know so it's like they're they're adding something and so I if they leave they didn't I'm not losing the thing that they've added but they're not part of the you know if we're baking a cake I guess they're not the flour and the eggs you know they're the vanilla and the like the flavorings yeah I guess is the way I put it it. yeah yeah so that's kind of how I look at it very important because nobody nobody wants to bland anything but um (laughs) (laughs) but they're not the essential things. I, I like that perspective. Um, I really like that perspective. Um, the foundation of life and your mm-hmm. happiness is definitely going to be found from the individuals that know you as you mm-hmm. grown into the woman that you are and the individuals that you've been able to connect with along the way, they add to their supplementary, right? Not yeah. I don't want to say yeah. unnecessary because they are necessary. We need to be connected in healthy ways. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's putting it in, into perspective, like the nature of what we've chosen for ourselves. And mm-hmm. well, and I, I wonder also how we were raised is very different than the individuals that we come in contact with. I found mm-hmm. when I moved here, I would hear people saying as a therapist, it's difficult for me sometimes like going out and things because I don't want to party with people that I've provided mental health treatment to. <laughs> um, and it can be really hard um, to just feel comfortable in spaces um, where we all just want to go out and have a good time. Because I've heard a lot of, you know, or I've noticed for myself, people coming here are really running from a lot of things mm-hmm. and haven't solidified and made peace with and healed from and you know there are certain things that I haven't healed from as well so I'm not you know um, exempt but I noticed that I tend to connect with some individuals that are still trying to grow and heal and make peace and I really had to be like 
okay, I, I am not here to be a salve for mm -hmm. the things that you choose not to seek support for. Now, if you're trying to pay me to be your therapist, that's different. Uh, <laughs> but in a friendship, yes, I want to be supportive. I want to love you and show up, but I cannot be the scapegoat for you not getting help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it is. It does make perfect sense. And I've it's got to be difficult for you because like as a therapist, it's got to be hard to, for, to draw that boundary of like, you are my friend. Like if you want to vent cool, but like, I'm not your yeah. therapist. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I struggle to turn it off, honestly, because I'm just like, well, have you considered ABCDE? And maybe like, okay, Kendall, you're doing it again. You cannot do that. You need to just have you talked to anybody, right? <laughs> it's hard being like a helping professional to not help. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why I've consciously chosen at this point, I'm really not looking to date people in Beijing anymore um, because I attract a lot of, I don't want to say broken, unhealed <laughs> souls. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> and I'm just, I, I, they like attract me like a magnet. And it always makes me think, what the hell, what am I putting out into this world? But I know that I'm a healing presence. And so mm -hmm. the unhealed will often find the healer and mm -hmm. yeah, Beijing ain't doing it for me. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I wonder like, when you think, when you think about like mental health and like growing up and culture and understanding and messages, what, what's the what's the earliest thing you can recall when it comes to how maybe your family or people in your orbit have talked about folks that, or have described or discussed people that deal with mental health struggles or just talk about it in general as black people? Oh, well, I guess, uh, I guess my experience is kind of extreme in the sense, because I grew up in a, a house with people who were addicted. Mm. So I grew up with addiction being a real fundamental part of my entire core self. You know, it's both of my parents really, or my mom and my stepdad both really suffered from addictions. And so when my, when my grandma, my grandma took us in, it was, that was already something that was very prevalent in our understanding of things that could go wrong, you yeah. know? Um, and so like, I guess mental health in its nutshell, like nobody was running around going, you have PTSD, you have this, you have this. And we, uh, we did see therapists from time to time. Um, but I, and a lot of times in black communities, we don't, we view mental health problems as um, something to, I don't want to say ignore, cause that's not fair. It's, more of a we all have these so your job is to figure out how to deal with it and move forward mm. and that's definitely not blaming our community because the <laughs> reality of it is for most of history we have not had access to these services so if you've grown up without access to healing you don't then go hey we need to find a healer for you because in your brain access is either not there or it's present and you can't afford it um, so definitely don't blame anyone for the situations that any of us were in. Uh, it's just when, when you don't know how to heal, 
you accidentally or inadvertently damage other people around you too. So for me, I guess growing up, mental health was, it wasn't something that we were hiding from or anything. It just, it was something that we didn't know how to address. Like I was, I, I when I wrote my article for the Suicide Awareness Month for Mark's, uh, for Mark's blog, one of the things I talked about was the first time I remembered being suicidal. And it was honestly a pretty silly argument that I was having. It was not silly to me at the time because <laughs> when you were small, you feel everything big. <laughs> Emotions are overwhelming. Um, but I was really upset about something. And I remember at one point, uh, well, I don't need to go into details of it, but the, the response that my family had to it was not the correct response. Mm. But I, but when I look at it, and it's and when I tell the story, it's easy to be like, oh, they responded wrong. You should be mad at them. They're awful. And that's not accurate. That's not even remotely close to accurate. The truth is, when you look at it outside of I'd had this really bad experience, I was really like freaking out. All I wanted was to die. From the perspective of everybody else around me, I am this extremely traumatized child running around wreaking havoc and they don't have any idea what to do. They've got zero tools to deal with all of the things that are wrong with me and they're doing their best. And that's not like an excuse of like, they, it's okay that they hurt you because they're doing their best, but it is important to be able to be like, it's not their fault. They did something bad and that bad thing led to consequences for me, but it's not their fault. They didn't have tools. Um, so mental health at home or growing up for me was always something that was there or we we knew we saw signs of problems and throughout the community throughout the family throughout um throughout my childhood I'd see these things but we didn't fully know how nobody fully knew how to address them in like super productive ways right um so I guess that's kind of been the theme of was figuring out the ways to address them uh, but what I can say is I was actually a very happy child for the most part I'd go through waves of like extreme depression, but for the most part, I was a very happy child. So even in extreme trauma, I was for the most part, pretty happy. There were things that would trigger me, yeah. but for the most part, I was a really happy kid. <laughs> I'm I'm grateful for you sharing that. And oh, it's like for the individuals that can look in, but not don't understand like to be in it. That what you mm -hmm. said is very key. It's not a personal failure of anyone. It is an indictment on a system that makes it difficult for those who need that resource and those supports and that community engagement. It's not available. So we do what we can with what we have. And although it might be a person's best, it still might be harmful for someone. Mm -hmm. But I wonder when working through trauma, it is, it's, it's key, like, to put that into perspective, um, that this thing happened, how do I move from, on from it, from this point, now, not let it go, it's more about reintegration, because it is part of your lived experience, right, but it's not, it does not totally define you as a person, so yeah. how do you, I hate it when people are like, well, everything happens for a reason. I want to slap folks oh. that say shit like that. It is so invalidating. Tell me the reason for this. <laughs> Ooh, right, like, 
I can't even I can't, I can't even articulate what I want to say. There's so many things that I have to say that I do want to try to be as PG as I can be. But I just I'm like, no, that that's that's not the case. There's mm-hmm. not a reason why I can't think of a reason why some of the worst things happen to people that are undeserving, especially children. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like to know what does it look like as an ecological system, an environment mm-hmm. to have more support, more community support, more resources poured into communities, different ways of healing that are more culturally informed that don't necessarily yeah. have to be talk therapy or church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to tell people you can't pray away trauma and <laughs> I oh, can't pray away anxiety and depression. Trust me, if I could, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah. And <laughs> But how do we meld all of the ways in which we use to heal so that we can have a collective of things that our communities can utilize so we can like heal from generations of trauma and oppression and eat well and have safe places that we can go unfettered and be happy and joyful? What does that look like? Right. Mm-hmm. I, this is a this is a dilemma that I clearly don't have an answer to. <laughs> um, do, do any of us? And um, for me, and and this is the my childhood and learned experiences, and then I, and also my degree in political science. For me, one of the things that the country country needs to do is move away from the prison based mentality, and I don't just mean that in terms of like locking people up we've mentally adopted a punishment-based system. Mm. If you fuck up, punish you. And it's mm. a, it's you fuck up, punish you. And because our instinct is punish, we don't instinctively go for empathy. Um, and if we, if I can't see that you're a human first and I don't want to help you. Um, so I kind of feel like that <clears throat> if I was to boil everything down to the core, it's, we need to be able to be more empathetic. Like, the one of the biggest one complaint that a lot of Americans have about how America responds to other countries' problems is that we respond with empathy. So when when something's happening in another country and it's terrible, we instantly respond with empathy. And then when stuff happens within our own country, we respond with enforcement. Um, and that to me is the difference. It's uh, we've adapted this mentality of you fucked up, punish you, and without an awareness of we're all humans or it's like, let's, let's respond with empathy first and then we can figure out what's causing this problem, you know? Yeah. But I, I think can't. we all know what's causing it. <laughs> not that, <laughs> like it's not, it's not unintentional that certain yeah. communities are experiencing higher incidents of certain situations, right? It's, it's yeah. manufactured and crafted. And yeah, that, that to me is, the very difficult part to reconcile is we know why these things are happening. What yeah. does it look like to be bold and courageous in changing that? And like getting behind the people yeah. that are actually trying to do that. It's all politics. It is all politics. When I when I look at the way the country has has grown over its its creation, even in things like civil rights, uh, Malcolm X well, Martin Luther was successful because of Malcolm X. 
Like the fact that we have the rights we have now is because they were given two options. They didn't like the second one. Mm. (laughs) Like, so it was, it was kind of a lesser of two evils. We can't just, and the FBI has come out. This isn't like conspiracy theory. This is like, we know this to be true. They had, (laughs) so it's in the document given we like, so it's, it's kind of hard to go which way is the right way when you know that technically everybody's aware that this is bad. (laughs) Um, so it, it is hard. It's definitely hard. Um, and I, I wouldn't even know where to start, which is also why I often not run for any offices and just was oh like gosh. new career path. <laughs> I know. Like someone was like, you should, you know, do something in politics. I was like, I don't have the temperament for politics. I am too honest. And <clears throat> I have such a strong social justice and moral core that it look it can look to some people oh she's so aggressive and no I'm knowledgeable and I am not going to be talked down about things that I am passionate about and I know right mm-hmm. and I would even sometimes it's difficult for me here in this space embodying mm-hmm. the body that I have and the and the morals that I've been you know born to have and grown to have when I see injustice in the spaces that I work in. Mm-hmm. I find it hard. I wonder how do you how do you manage? How do you manage? Oh, hmm. I mean, I'm here when I get angry. I get angry just like everybody else. Um, I think for me, I do I do get mad. <laughs> but I guess for me, it's kind of a I don't want to say an awareness. It's more of a there are just so many levels. There are so many layers to it. You know, like. Something happens that's clear injustice. I know I have an instinctual response that I want to have, but I know that that instinctual response will make the situation worse. <laughs> so then I have to, then I have to measure because stuff happens that deeply offends me that I just ignore because I realize that responding to it will do one of two things. It'll validate, it'll validate whatever that person's saying. So if they're saying something that's very racist or very too, and they're saying it with zero check, that means that they're saying it to see what I do. Mm. And if I, if I challenge them, then I'm proving their point mm. because they've already established that everybody around them is comfortable enough with what they've said. So if I'm the one that's like, that's not cool, then I just prove that I'm the problem. So I, it's a more of a, an awareness of like, I can't respond the way I want to respond at all times. Um, and, and I get, I get hate from all sides. Like there's, I get hate from you know, like the white communities. I get hate from the black communities for not being black enough. Like it's, it's all measured because it's like, if I, if I respond the way that I am feeling that I should respond, it's going to lead to more problems mm. and being aware that life is chess and not checkers. I'm just going to choose to not move here <laughs> and I'm going to, we're going to, yeah. we're going to play this game out properly. Cause I it's like, it. it's yeah, it's like, that's kind of how I have to, that's how I have to move. I'd be struggling I'd be like because I've been in this you know in the space where a like a clear injustice has occurred and I'm sitting here like do I say something do I not say something I'm looking around the room and I'm like y'all all know what just happened mm-hmm. how do you not say anything and it it literally ate me alive for the whole year because I felt so inauthentic to myself and Mm -hmm. I struggled and I just it's like you're saying chestnut checkers 
I guess at my big age of 41, I'm still <laughs> um, <laughs> learning to appropriately maneuver in a way that I'm not going to blow up the whole thing um, and still feel rooted in what I believe, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that takes a huge exercise of vulnerability. So I want to ask you, because we're, we're nearing the, you know, the interview in, when you think <laughs> of vulnerability, do you see it as something that is a strength or that can be detrimental? Uh, both. I don't really look at it as an or. Mm -hmm. Um, because for me, there's like this this came up in the in the group chat at some point. When we're vulnerable with people, we are giving them a piece of us and we want them to hold it. Mm -hmm. But not everybody can hold you. Yep. And expecting people who aren't trained to hold you and then punishing them for not being able to is not helpful to anybody. Like uh, you don't know, like 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 you said earlier, there's so much about me you had no idea about. So if somebody walks up with a similar trauma to me and then they drop their trauma on me, you don't know what in me you've triggered. So you, the assumption is that my lack of a response is an indictment of you and it's not. It's I have stuff to carry and we can't lay our burdens on everybody all the time. Right. So I don't look at it as detrimental like or, or it's more of a both. Like you have to be aware of when and how to be vulnerable yeah like it's just it's not yeah like it's it's a situational situation I think that being vulnerable is good being willing to share your stories being willing to open yourself up being willing to be present and available to people to get to know you as you that's great but there are enough people out there who only want to get to know you as you to consume you and those aren't the people you need to be vulnerable with Exactly. I've, I've unfortunately mm -hmm. found that I've uh, noticed that a lot in this expat culture of the transactional nature of connection. Um, mm -hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. I, I want to expound upon vulnerability. I, in order to grow and to heal is necessary. However, everyone doesn't have the capacity to mm -hmm be a safe space for that to occur and mm -hmm. I think things move so fast as an ex you know in the lives that we live as expats abroad we're looking to and somebody said this to me when I first moved here they were like when you meet people things really move really fast like people that you might connect with here you would never connect with back home and I'm just like so then why do y'all do it here and that's a you and like you'll see when that winter hit and you won't. And I was like, oh my God, I found myself in so many terrible situations. I'm like, it makes complete sense. We're longing for connection in a foreign land. We want to feel, you know, comforted and loved and supported. And like we belong in a place that isn't for us, that we've chosen yeah. to be a part of. And I think we can ameliorate a lot of hurt and confusion if we just take our time and recognize what it is the energy that people are giving um how they're living their lives is that something that aligns with who we want to be connected to um so judging to a degree because everybody judges um yeah. and really just identifying what do i want what does a healthy life abroad look like and how do i tap into my resources so that i can get that one thing i tell people all the time if you can find a therapist, I'm always going therapy. If you can find a mm -hmm. therapist, 
get a therapist, right? Because um, mm-hmm. we're adjusting to a new country, a new culture, a new way of being, all new people. So who you are back home, you you really aren't mm-hmm. that person in this new space that you've adopted as home. You are a different yeah. version of yourself and hopefully more of yourself. What it is that you said, you know, you've given yourself the freedom to find who you are in this experiment called living abroad. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to le- ask you like one more thing. When you think about, you shared a lot about um, engaging in the process of healing, finding yourself authenticity. What do you believe healing, continued healing looks like for you? Oh, um, it looks like a lot of pain, some tears, uh, <laughs> a lot of brownies. Um, but, <laughs> but um, I guess overall, it looks like progress, um, making sure that I'm different every time I look up and forgiveness, um, because sometimes you will like, you will slip up or I might like, I might measure me next year and be like, I haven't gained or I've, or I've, I've fallen back into a habit. It looks like forgiveness and acceptance. Um, Cause it's, I feel like you can't heal if you can't acknowledge that you're human, therefore going to mess up. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of lame, but that's what it looks like. <laughs> I don't judge anything. Everybody's, you know, experience is their own, right? And this would yeah. be, my last question before I ask you to share with the world how we can find and follow you. When okay. you think of the life that you have experienced, the life that you're currently living, what are you most proud of? Ooh. I love it. I am. The- <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, what am I most proud of? Um, I am most proud of, proud of my growth. Um, like there are tangible things I can say. I'm proud that I quit drinking. I'm proud that I graduated from college. I'm proud I did like there are tangible things, but I'm proud of my growth. I'm proud that, that I refused, I refuse to remain the same that I want, that I want wholeheartedly not want to want, but want <clears throat> to be different tomorrow to be better. And so I think that that is, that's what I'm the most proud of. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like I have so many notes that I've just jotted down, you know, <laughs> after you, you know, gone through this interview and I'm beyond grateful for the vulnerability, the honesty, your candor, um, and just, you know, being willing to share your story with the world and, and trusting this platform to facilitate that process. So before we end, I would love for you to share with us how we can stay connected to you. How can we follow you on social? How do we find you? Oh, let's see. Um, if you want to follow me on social, by the way, I don't love social media, but if you want to follow me on social, my Insta is hopelessly Tatiana. So hopelessly T-A-T-I-A-N-A. Um, that's also how you'd find me on Twitter. But I'm going to be honest, I'm not really on the social platforms like that because I have low self-esteem and don't need that to make it worse. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, other than that, if you're in Beijing, you can find my WeChat and we can hang. <laughs> what platform do you uh, do you like most? Oh, my podcast. Okay. Hopelessly so, Tatiana. Yeah, I love and, that one the most. Okay. And and we can we find <laughs> which are the, the oh Lord, I just lost my whole train of thought. Are the 
pl- the podcast platform hosting uh, that we can find you on? Um, well, Spotify, Google, um, and uh, Apple for sure. And it's on Stitcher and all the other ones too. So just type in hopelessly Tatiana and you can hear me ramble about all types of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, okay, cool. I, again, am really grateful for you sharing your story, for you spending this hour and 20 minutes with me and the Black expat community. And I want to say to everybody that's watching, thank you once again for tuning into the Black expat experience. I encourage you, as always, to keep taking risks, keep impacting your communities, and above all, make sure that you make your mental health a priority. My only request is that you please share this in your communities of influence um, and that you join us along this journey that as we demonstrate to the world that Black people belong everywhere, we are everywhere, and that we thrive and live abundantly. And with that, I will say thank you. Thank you, Tatiana, and peace, everyone.